Turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 1105. I'd like to think that things aren't that bad at the Simmons house, but I don't know. <laughs> um, I, was, uh, I got to be down in Daphne this past week for the Alabama Baptist Convention, and um, in the providence of God, I, I got to run into an old friend, uh, one of my seminary professors, somebody I hadn't seen in almost a decade. Um, his name is Brian Payne. He played football at Alabama back in the day, but I won't hold that against him. Um, but I got to talk with him, and we were catching up, and we were talking about our families, and uh, I, I mentioned our son Nixon and how he came into our family through adoption, and his eyes lit up, and he said, oh, we, we uh, adopted a little boy a couple years ago as well, and he started telling me the story about this little boy. His name is Sifan. Sifan was born in Ethiopia, and uh, when he was about two or three years old, a family in Louisiana adopted him. So he came to the States and lived with them in Louisiana. He doesn't remember anything about Ethiopia. This is the only family he knows. And uh, he stayed with that family for about five years. And then after they had him for about five years, they decided they didn't want him anymore. And so they were placing him for adoption. And so Brian Payne, this seminary professor who is... Uh, in his late 40s and already has several children of his own, um, gets a phone call one day from someone that he knew. And they told him the story of Sifan, this little boy who was born in Ethiopia but has a Cajun accent and lives in Louisiana. At this time, he was about seven or eight years old. And uh, they told Brian, he told Brian the story about Sifan and said, when I was hearing about his story and I was trying to think about a family that he might could go and live with, I thought about your family. Um, because Brian has uh, several older kids. And the man said, I, I think that Sifan would do well to have brothers. And beyond just a stable parents, to have stable brothers who would be around his age and love him and sort of teach him what it's like to be a little boy. And so Brian Payne said before he even got off the phone, he knew we're taking this boy home. And so uh, <clears throat> he hung up the phone and called his wife and told her Stephen's story and let her come to the same conclusion. And uh, so they adopted Stephen, and Stephen's been living with them now for a couple years. Uh, I, I thought about that story. Uh, I've thought about it almost nonstop since I heard it. But I thought about it as I was reading our text for today in Luke 11, because we're going to think about prayer today. One of the most important things we need to know when we pray is that we are coming to a Father. And yet what I want us to consider together today is that when we pray, we don't just have a Father. We also have brothers and sisters. We're not the only child who has access to this loving Father. We're not the only ones who have privilege to Him, to come before Him and to cast our cares upon Him. And so there are times when we come to our Father alone in secret when no one else knows we're there and we lay our burdens out to Him 
but there are other times when it is fitting and wise and good for us to come to our Father with our brothers and sisters in prayer. That's what I want us to ponder together today. So let's read together in Luke chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught His disciples. And He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And He said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence... He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful that because of the finished work of Jesus, we can come before You and call upon You as our Father not because we are your children by nature, but because we are your children by grace through the adoption of the Holy Spirit. Lord, as we consider and ponder this privilege of prayer to get today, I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we do that to examine our hearts and see whether we truly are your children, whether we truly do have this privilege and what we're doing with it. So God, I pray that you would bring conviction and I pray that you would bring grace to our hearts through your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week, um, I gave us just a really simple definition of prayer. I said that prayer is God's children calling on His name. We call on His name. We ask Him to do what He has promised to do. And we do that individually, but it's equally important for us to call on God's name in unison, for us to lift our voices together. I don't know if, if any of you can relate to this, but in our household, we have two boys, and they most of the time cannot agree about anything. But when they come to me in agreement, there's something really powerful about it. Now, sometimes I'm sort of worried about what's this scheme that they have. But uh, there's something about when children come to a father in agreement that makes him sort of stop and think about what it is they're asking. That's our focus this morning, praying together. I don't mean in any way to compare me to God. I want us to see that God is infinitely better father than I am. Um, but our, our focus this morning is praying together. Uh, how we come before God in prayer, not just individually, but 
as a body, as brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to point us toward two things that we must do. And then I'll point us to three truths about the God to whom we pray. So two things that we must do. First, we must partner in prayer. We must partner in prayer. This whole passage is prompted by the disciples seeing Jesus praying and one of them asking him, Lord, teach us to pray. Notice, not just Lord, teach me to pray, but teach us to pray. There's a very similar passage in Matthew 6. So I want you to hold your place here in Luke 11 and flip back a few pages to Matthew 6. As we read in Luke 11, that so-called Lord's Prayer or model prayer, you might have thought, well, that sounds kind of like the one I'm used to, but there's some things that don't sound exactly the same. You're going to hear that in, in Matthew 6. In this passage in Matthew 6, Jesus gives His followers instructions about how not to pray. Notice what He says in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. And then He gives them this model prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." Now, people sometimes take this passage in Matthew 6 out of context to mean that we should never pray in front of other people. In fact, Jesus warns them about people who love to stand up in the synagogue and pray. So, you know, the question is, should I be worried? Because I'm doing something eerily similar. We're not in a synagogue, but we're in a, a building where the church of Jesus Christ meets. And I just stood up and prayed more than once this morning. So, should I be chastised? Should I stop doing that? The problem is Jesus prayed in front of His disciples. And He seems to have prayed at least on occasion for long periods of time. I've also heard this passage used to say we shouldn't pray for long periods of time because it says don't heap up empty phrases. There's a difference between heaping up empty phrases and praying for a long time. You can heap up empty phrases in a 15 second prayer. Right? You can just sort of gobbledygook your way through 15 seconds of prayer, and that's empty phrases. But I've known people who can pray for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, and they're not heaping up empty phrases. They're pouring out their hearts to God. So Jesus prayed in front of other people. He seems to have prayed at least at times for long periods of time, so long that the disciples fell asleep. Uh, it's clear in the book of Acts that the early church prayed together frequently. They certainly did not take Jesus' words to mean that we should never pray in front of others. So it's not a question of whether we should pray privately or corporately. We should do both. There is a legitimate warning, however, about praying in public. We can pray with others, 
But the warning is about praying to be heard or seen by others. It's sort of similar to, to singing. When we sing in the church, our, our desire should always be to glorify God. We don't, we don't want people to be impressed by us. We also shouldn't be singing out of fear that they're going to be unimpressed by us. The same is true for prayer. Prayer should never be a tool to impress someone, but it can be a powerful tool to encourage someone. If you've ever had someone place their hand on your shoulder and pray for you, you know what I'm talking about when I say it can be incredibly encouraging for someone to pray with you. Not just to pray for you, but with you, where you can hear them praying. If you've ever heard someone pour out their heart passionately to God over some situation, you know what I'm talking about when I say that prayer can be a powerful tool of encouragement and love. So here's a very simple diagnostic that we can use. And this, you can use this for more than prayer, but we'll apply it specifically to prayer. When I pray in front of others, am I motivated by my love for God and for those other people or am I hoping that they will love me more? Where am I pointing the spotlight? Am I turning it towards me or am I pointing it at God? Am I thinking about the glory of God and the, the good of others? Or am I fixated on, I wonder if they, they think I'm really eloquent the way I'm praying. Or, oh, I, I sure hope they're impressed by how holy I sound when I pray. It cuts the other way as well. If I never pray in front of other people, here's a question. Am I motivated by fear that they will think less of me? The person who prays to be seen by others and the person who refuses to pray in front of others, both of those people are often motivated by the same sin, which is pride and the fear of man. Now, I'm not suggesting that every individual must pray in front of the church. So if, if you, I don't want you to hear me saying if you, if you refuse to pray in front of the church, you're in sin. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you're afraid to ever pray in front of other Christians, you have to ask yourself, what's motivating that? Am I motivated by the fact that I fear what they think about me? That's pride. So there's a biblical expectation that we will pray together. All right, so let's make our way back to Luke 11. You may already be back there. Notice what Jesus says in verse 2. And He said to them, When you pray... Now, English translations don't always do a good job of this, but the you, the word you there is plural. When y'all pray. When y'all pray. And notice the plural pronouns in the prayer itself. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. There is an expectation here that we are going to pray together. That God is not only my Father, He's our Father. We certainly need to watch our motives and guard our hearts, but Jesus clearly expects that we will pray together. So, first thing we must do is we must partner in prayer. The second thing we must do is we must persist in prayer. We must persist in prayer. So after giving an example or model of how we might pray together, Jesus then tells a parable. 
in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. He tells a parable about a man who goes to his friend's home in the middle of the night to borrow some bread. Uh, the first century Jewish culture was a, an honor-shame culture, which means that if someone showed up on your doorstep unannounced and you didn't have something to give them, you risked being shamed. And so this might not seem like a big deal to us, because we might just say, hey, brother, you showed up at midnight. That's your fault. You can wait till the, the, till the morning for breakfast. But this would have been a, a very, very urgent situation for this, this man who has had guests arrive in the middle of the night. He risks losing face. And so he goes to his friend's home in desperation. He's banging on the door. Please, can I borrow three loaves? Because I've had some people show up and I don't have anything to give them. And Jesus' point in telling the story is that even if the man inside the house is not motivated by love, even if he's not thinking, oh, that's my friend out there and I don't want him to lose face, so I better get up and give him some bread. Even if all he's thinking is, what do I have to do to get this guy off of my front porch at midnight? That's what he's going to do. Look at verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend... Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. When I read that this week, I had to go to dictionary.com and look up the word impudence. What does the word impudence mean? It is, as best I can tell, it's, and this is Matt Simmons' paraphrase, it means being annoying. It means that you're being urgent and you are insistent to the point of getting on somebody's nerves. The NIV translates it as shameless audacity. Uh, the New King James uh, uses the word persistence. Persistence. It's somebody who just keeps nagging and nagging and nagging and they're getting on your nerves. It reminds me of another parable that Jesus tells about prayer. Hold your place here again and flip over just a few pages to Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. And look at verse 1. Luke 18 verse 1. And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, she's being impudent, she's bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So, the judge gives her justice, not because it's really what he wants to do, but because she just keeps bothering. Now, we're going to come back to that thought in a second, because Jesus' point is not that that's what God is like. But I just want us to pause and, and consider, when's the last time we did anything resembling that? When is the last time that you asked God for something more than once? When is the last time you pleaded with Him again and again like the persistent widow? God is able to answer our prayers the first time we ask. He's able to answer them before we pray at all, but He still commands us to persist in prayer. 
And so could it be that the reason some of our prayers go unanswered is because we have not yet persisted in our asking? There are times when our boys will see something they want. You know, we'll be trying to just... That's why we love Walmart pickup, because you don't actually have to go in and go past anything, because they can find something even on the bread aisle that they've got to have. I wish there was, they would pass a law that says you can't put toys on the bread aisle, but they all do it. Well, and they'll say, I want that. I want that. Now, we don't always give it to them, right? And why don't we always give it to them? Sometimes we don't give it to them because it's something they don't have any business having. Because sometimes they want things that they don't need or they shouldn't have. Other times we don't give it to them right away because we're waiting to see, is this something that they're still going to want tomorrow? Is this something they're still going to want in a week or in a month? And if they keep asking for it for a month, then you can tell, well, they really want this thing, and then maybe we might get it. So here's the question. Could it be that our prayers sometimes go unanswered, not because God is unwilling to answer them, but because He's waiting to see how much we really want what we're asking for? He's waiting to see if we're going to be like that persistent widow. He's waiting to see if we're going to nag Him. Please, give me justice. Please, do this. Please. So let's head back to Luke 11. You may already be there. Here's one way you could think about it. This, this parable about the guy who goes to the house at midnight. When we pray together, it's not just one person showing up on God's doorstep at midnight, but a whole group of people showing up. And while one person bangs on the door and pleads with God, the others are out there shouting, Amen! Amen! And they all take turns, banging on the door, banging on the door, and the rest of them are saying, Amen! Amen! That's what corporate prayer can and should be. Banging on the doors of heaven together, calling on God's name with a unified voice to do what He has promised. So we must partner in prayer. We must persist in prayer now that we have those two expectations in our mind, I want us to turn our attention to the God to whom we pray. What is His character? What is He like? I want to point out three truths about God. First, God's willingness is boundless. God's willingness is boundless. There is something really, really important to keep in mind about this parable and about the parable of the persistent widow. In both parables, the person who is in the position to give something is hesitant. The judge does not fear God, does not love man, so he doesn't want to give the widow justice. He only does it because she won't leave him alone. In this case, in Luke 11, Jesus says, listen, even if the man inside the house won't get up and give the man bread because his friend's out there. He's going to do it just to get the man off of his porch. Jesus' point is not that this is what God is like. His point is that God is infinitely better. God answers us not to get us off of His proverbial doorstep, not because we're a nuisance that He's trying to rid Himself of, but because of His boundless willingness. Of course, He wants us to persist in prayer, but He wants us to persist not because He needs to be persuaded, but because He wants us to be persuaded. Even a bad judge... 
eventually relents because he sees that this widow won't leave him alone unless he gives her justice. How much more will God, the perfectly righteous judge, give justice to His people who call on His name? And more than that, God is not a man shut up inside his home, annoyed by his friend who comes at midnight. He's not a cruel judge who only gives justice so that we'll leave him alone. He is a loving Father who has called us to live inside his home with him. He delights for his children to come and ask him to give them all that they need. He may not answer immediately. He may wait to see how strongly and persistently we desire what He desires, but He is good and His willingness is boundless. So when we pray, we're not trying to twist the arm of a hesitant father. We're, we're, we're getting the ear of a father who loves us and who may or may not answer us, but His willingness is boundless. Second... God's resources are limitless. His resources are limitless. The parable ends in Luke 11 with the man inside the home getting up and giving his friend whatever he needs. And look at what Jesus says next in verse 9. He then turns and speaks to us. He's just been telling us this story and then he says, And I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Again, it may be that God won't just answer on the first asking. It may be that He wants us to seek. And even when we seek, He might want us to knock. But these verses speak to His willingness they also speak to His limitless resources. He's not only willing, but He's also able to give us whatever we need. Not everything we desire or want, but He's able to give us all that He deems necessary for us. In the, in the prayer that Jesus tells us to pray, He tells us to, to ask God to give us our daily bread, which is meet our physical needs. But there's also spiritual needs and forgive us our sins. And God is able to meet both of those needs. He has made provision for us through the gift of His Son Jesus. There is no end to God's willingness and no end to His ability. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. When we pray, we're not calling on the name of a God with a shortage of goodness. We're calling on the name of a God whose willingness and goodness are boundless. And when we pray, we're not calling on the name of a God with a shortage of resources. We're not coming to a father who says, boy, I sure am willing to help you, but I just can't. He says, no, I'm willing and I'm able. We're calling on the name of one whose resources are limitless. And third, God's wisdom is matchless. God's wisdom is matchless. We, we often treat our thoughts and our desires as if they were infallible. Um, we think that just because we want something or even because we feel something, it must be true and right. But that is foolishness and a lie from hell. 
Sin impacts every part of who we are. On our own, we are incapable of knowing what to pray for. It's really helpful for us to acknowledge this fact. That on our own, we are incapable even of knowing what to pray for. God is not obligated to give us all that we desire or ask because we may desire or ask for something that He would be unwise and unloving to give us. Before we ever pray, God already knows the wisest course of action. That does not mean that praying is pointless. It means that we should pray in humility. It means that we pray knowing that God knows far better what He should do in any given circumstances. Prayer is not a, 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 it's not a resource we give to God. It's not a favor that we do for God. God's not twiddling His thumbs in heaven saying, boy, I sure hope that Matt will tell me what I need to do because I'm just, I'm lost here. I'm confounded. I don't know what to do. I sure hope Matt will tell me what to do. Look at what Jesus says in verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So God is willing to give us what is good. He's able to give us what is good. And He's wise to know what is good to give. All three of those truths about God are really, really important. Because imagine if God were all-powerful and willing, but He, he wasn't all-wise. He would kind of be like this, this genie who sort of says, you know, man, I've got all this power. I can do whatever I want, and I really want to help you, but I don't have a clue what to do. So it's kind of useless. Or imagine if God were all-powerful and all-wise, but He wasn't good and loving. That would be scary. We need all three of these. Imagine if God was willing and wise, but not able. Well, God would be like a really good friend. We can go to Him for advice, but He can't do anything to help us. God's children have the privilege to, of coming to Him in prayer, knowing that He is all three. He is willing and good to do what is good. He is able to do what is good. And He's wise to know what is good to do. All of that means that it should be our desire to come to Him in prayer on His terms. There's a phrase we say almost every time we pray. And I want to use this phrase to give us... A, just a simple, practical application for what we've heard today. The phrase that we say almost every time we pray is, In Jesus' name. Usually we pray it at the end of our prayer. In Jesus' name, Amen, we say. Jesus promises us in John 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now that does not mean that as long as we tack on the phrase in Jesus' name to every prayer, He's obligated to do all we ask. When He says, whatever you ask in My name, He's not just saying, as long as you say in Jesus' name, Amen, then I'm kind of obligated to do what you ask. 
What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? What does it mean to ask something in Jesus' name? It means that when we pray, we should be striving to pray according to His character and His will. Jesus' name is His character. We sometimes talk about someone's good name. What does that mean? It means that they have a good reputation, that they're known for having good character. And so when Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, He's saying, whatever you ask in accordance with my character, whatever you ask according to my will, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So what that means practically for us when we pray is that it means that we have to let Him have the first word. When we pray, we're speaking to God, but we should remember that He has spoken to His Word. And a one-sided relationship is not much of a relationship. It would be wise for us to listen before we speak. And when we listen to God's Word, we find there are certain things He's already declared His willingness to do. He wants to make us more holy. He says... This is God's will, your sanctification, to make you more holy. He wants to fill us with His Spirit. He says, be filled with the Spirit. And He wouldn't tell us to do that if He didn't will, desire that. He wants to increase our faith. He wants to help us put off sin. He wants to enable us to love others. He wants to empower us to serve. He wants to give us a greater view of His glory and a clearer view of our indwelling sin. He wants to incline our hearts to repentance. He wants to advance His kingdom and cause the gospel to speed forth through our efforts. These are the things for which we can pray with boldness and anticipation that He will hear and answer because He has said, this is my will. And this is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It means that we're concerned not only with what we want, but primarily with what He wants. And praying in Jesus' name means also that we're acknowledging that the only reason we even have this privilege of prayer is because of who Jesus is and what He has done. We can call on God as Father because we have been adopted into His family. And that adoption came at the expense of Jesus' very blood. So prayer is not a cheap gift. It is a blood-bought privilege that belongs only to those who are united to Jesus by faith. I mentioned... Sifan earlier, that little boy who uh, the pains adopted from Ethiopia by way of Louisiana. That's never the end of the story. The past two or three years that they've had Sifan have not been easy. They've been very difficult. In fact, Brian was telling me that at <clears throat> about seven months after Sifan had moved in and was living with them, he went missing one day. They had no idea where he had gone. And when they found him, they realized he, he had one thing in his possession, a boxing glove. One of Brian's older son's boxes. They said, why do you have the boxing glove? Why did you run away from home? Well, it turns out that he had stolen a snack 
and he feared that Brian and his wife were going to put him up for adoption again. So he took a boxing glove because he figured he was going to have to go out and kill an animal to eat. So Brian gets down on his knees, eye level with Sifan, puts his hands on his shoulders. And he says, Sifan, you know what your problem is? You are still thinking like an orphan, not like a son. And I wonder if that's not true of us sometimes. That we're too scared to pray, or we never think to pray, and when we do pray, we fixate only on what we want. We rarely pause to consider what might please our Father. And so I am standing here on behalf of your Heavenly Father this morning, holding out His Word to you as His ambassador. Stop thinking like an orphan. Think like one of His children. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to the invitation of God. I'm going to be standing at the head of this aisle. I'd love to speak with you or pray with you this morning. And that's, that's the application. That's the, that's the takeaway today. If, if you're a child of God, then don't think like an orphan. Think like a child of God. For all of us, it's, it's, it's good and wise for us to pause right now and to ask ourselves, am I a child of God? We don't become God's children by doing anything, by accomplishing anything. I love to tell the story about when we went to the courthouse with Nixon and the judge read the decree of adoption. You know what Nixon did while all that happened? He was asleep. He didn't do anything. The work was totally done. That's what God has done. He's done everything that's necessary for us to be His child. All we have to do is receive that, trust in Him, turn from sin, surrender. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for the wonderful privilege of prayer. And Lord, we're mindful today that uh, it comes to us at great expense, at the expense of the blood of Jesus. God, help us today that we would not think like orphans, but like your children. God, help us to, in this moment, turn our eyes toward you. Spirit of God, would you draw us to Jesus? And we pray all this in his name. Let's stand and sing a hymn of invitation.